Something that's interesting, I've noticed just about everybody likes some type of music. Some people are fans of country music. Other people hate country music. Who hates country yeah. music? Anybody hate country music? I actually am a convert. I, I like country music now. Um, my roommate in college loved country music and I thought it was lame and by the end of college, I liked country music, I was a convert. Some people like rap and hip hop and pop. Some people don't like that. Some people like rock. Some people like heavy metal, the thrasher stuff. That's like whoever's singing it loses their voice in the first two seconds of the song. They just start screaming. Some people like dubstep. Some people like house music, dance music. Everybody likes music, but typically people like different kinds of music. And that's fine, but I've not found that many people in life who hate music altogether. There's a time sometimes where we sing to people um, in an awkward way. I always think it's awkward. It's, um, it's this situation right here. You recognize this situation? Um, the birthday party, where everybody says, let's sing. And have you ever questioned that? Like, why, why do we sing to people? And then if you're the person who is your birthday, some of you sit there and you're like happy and you like it because you like the birthdays. Others of you like, just get me out of here. I just absolutely hate this. Stop singing. Don't sing. Oh, grandma, it's, oh, it sounds so bad. Don't do it. Oh. And then, then you're stuck there and people are singing to you and it's really awkward. Well, you might not like that, and the reason I don't really like happy birthday songs, and if you ever sing happy birthday to me, I'm sorry, I don't really like it. I'm one of those people who doesn't like it. But the reason I don't like it is because it's not original, right? It's not like it's this original song that you wrote for me, right? It's this song that you've heard your entire life that you just sing on birthdays, and it's like over and over, and you say it a bunch of times, and you call me Dear John, and it's like, you never call me Dear John. It's weird, right? You're just putting me into the lyrics of this song. It's impersonal. Everybody kind of sings in this flat, like, mm, right? Well, you might not like that when people sing to you at your birthday, but ladies, you might like something like this if on your wedding day, your husband-to-be, your groom, wrote a song, wrote a beautiful love song, and sang it to you in front of everybody, and it was great, and he's got this great voice, you married this talented musician, and he sings to you, and it's an original song, and it's for you, and it's about you, and it's all about you, and everybody's sitting there, and yeah, some of you are like, ah, no, but others of you say, ah, I, I kind of like that more than the happy birthday song, if you know what I mean, that sounds a little bit better, right? Well, when you sing to a person, right, Depends the type of song you sing, how they're going to take that, right? When I sing happy birthday to you, you might not think it's a big deal because it's impersonal, it's not about you, right? But if you got this song sung to you in this special moment, you might like it because it's all about you and the focus is on you and it's heartfelt and it's sincere and it's genuine. Well, that's the kind of thing we want to do when we gather on Sunday mornings. This was not just right now. This was a couple weeks ago. Um, when we gather on Sunday mornings and Saturday nights and we come to the narrow and we sing worship songs, right? It's not like happy birthday. Okay? Some of us, we sing like it's happy birthday, and we, we mumble the lyrics like it's happy birthday, but it's not like happy birthday. It's more than that. It's a song, each song that we write, or that we sing, is a song that's directed towards God, it's written about God, and it's for God. Right? And if, um, if I told you I don't like birthday songs, so don't sing to me, but if your friend, your best friend said, I really like it when people sing to me, right? If you really like your friend, you're going to do what they want, right? Well, in God's word says that he actually wants us to sing to him. That's something that people throughout all of time have done. They've taken the feelings and the emotions that they have towards God and they express it to God. They say true things about God, but here's the thing. Some people don't like worship music, right? And I understand that 
But here's the thing that we have to get over. Worship music is not about you. It's not about me. It's about the person we're singing to. And just in the same way, if I came to your birthday party and you said, I love it when people sing, and you say, and I say, ah, I don't want to sing, and I sit there, arms crossed while everybody's singing at your birthday, giving you a, a blank stare, kind of upset, right? just like you would take that offensively, God doesn't like it when we come together and we don't sing. God doesn't like it when, we're, when our mind is elsewhere, when we're not focused on him. Worship music is about God, and it's for God. Worship music something we should care about. And it's something we don't talk about all that often, but it's something we do together. So that's why we're going to take these next two weeks and talk about worship music. The Bible actually has a lot to say. And the main thing I want you to write down, the big idea on the top of your page, I just want everybody to get this down. This is the big idea for this sermon and the next sermon. This is the big idea. Here's what it says. You need to sing worship to God because of who God is and because what he's done. You need to sing worship. It's something that God says, I enjoy this, I like this, and so we're going to do it. That's why we do it when we gather together. That's why we don't always do it all the time. But when we gather together on Sunday mornings and Saturday nights, we have someone who can lead us in worship, and we have the setting to do it, that's why we do it. Because of who God is, and because God has done great things, and we're reflecting that back on him. Point number one. Love for you to write this down on your worksheet. I know you got a lot of things on your worksheet, but here's the thing I want you to write down on that. Point number one, God deserves your worship, okay? That's just a statement of fact. That's not a command. That's just a statement of fact. God deserves your worship. That's the first reason why we should sing worship, because God deserves your worship, all right? Worship is in quotations, because we haven't even talked about that, what that word means. We use it to talk about music. We use it to talk about other things in the Bible, but I want to understand what that word means. And to understand that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. It's towards the end of your Bibles, book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews 12. We find something out about God here, and we find something out about what we are supposed to do when it comes to worship. Check it out. Hebrews 12, it's at the end of that, um, of that book in the end of the chapter, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. We're going to look at two verses here, and I want you to check this out. So make sure you got it in your Bibles. Check it out. Once you're there, it says, starts with the word therefore, which always refers back to what came before this. It's this conversation about how the earth and everything that's on it is going to pass away, and that God is going to remove all the, the, the powerful nations, the powerful kingdoms that are on the earth. God's going to remove that, one day, and he's going to replace it with his kingdom. Look at what verse 28 says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He's talking about this kingdom that we're looking forward to. Remember how last week we said, if you're a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of a kingdom in a place you've never been. And he says, the author of Hebrews says, look, we should be grateful because we're receiving that kingdom that cannot be shaken. Nothing that could happen in this world could change what God is going to do in bringing this kingdom. Now look what he says. And thus, because of that, let us offer to God acceptable worship. We should worship God because of what he's promised to do and what he's going to do. And how should we act? What should we be thinking? It says, with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. He gives an illustration. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. If you showed up, to the campsite that you're going to on vacation, and you found out that there was a consuming fire. There's a big wildfire, right? There's been a lot of wildfires here in California the past couple of years, um, wildfires in Australia the last couple months, right? It's these big consuming fires that eat up the land, right? If you stood 
where you always go camping, you go to the same campsite, and what you see, you look over your shoulder, and you see this, a consuming fire. How would you feel about that? Like, what does it make you feel inside? Scared, right? You would have reverence. You would stand back, right? Reverence, it has the idea of revering, saying, whoa, that's that's dangerous, that's important, that's scary. I'm going to stand back from that. I'm not just going to come up close and just snuggle with the tree that's on fire, right? That's not a good idea, right? No, you, you stand back, right? And in a sense, you have awe, right? Because you think, whoa, right? What the word awe means is the word, like, whoa, that's a big deal. You have reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. If you understand who God is, you'll understand point number one, right? What does point number one say? God deserves our worship, right? He deserves you to worship him, to look at him and say, whoa, He's a big deal. He's not like us. Anytime someone in the Bible sees God, they always have the same response. They do one thing. They freak out. All of them. Isaiah did it. Ezekiel did it. John did it. They all freak out. Why? Well, because they see God and they realize, whoa, God's totally different than me. When we come to worship, right, one of the things that we're doing is we're stepping back and we're saying, wow, God is different than us. But I want to get into what this word worship means. I know I have it in quotations, but this first subpoint I'd like you to write down for point number one, if God deserves your worship, here's, here's a quick definition of worship. Worship is more than just music, okay? It's more than just music. Sometimes when we say the word worship, all we mean is music. Right? And it's okay to refer to musical worship as worship. That's just shorthand, though. Worship includes music. It's not limited to music. Here's what worship is. It's recognition and submission, Right? Those two words kind of rhyme, so that's why I try to give this word. Recognition and submission right, to God. You recognize God. Just like if you stepped up to that forest fire, you're going to recognize that that forest fire, that consuming fire, that's a big deal, that's scary, I, I can't get too close. Right? You're respecting it. You're fearing it. And submission, what do you do if you're going to submit to a forest fire? Right? You've got you to, in some ways, do things that protect you from it. You submit to God. The crazy thing about God is he's called a consuming fire, but he's also called love. He's called the consuming fire who won't let the guilty go unpunished, but then it also says he's forgiving and merciful and loving. The Bible says that God is transcendent, which is a fancy word, which means he's like way up there. Like he's totally different. But it also says that he's imminent, which means he's close to us. Christ is in heaven, but the Apostle Paul says Christ is in us too. This whole weird thing of God's far and he's near, that is what we're we're dealing with when we worship. I want to show you that worship is something that people have been doing for a long time. So what we're going to do right now, it might feel like this doesn't feel like much of a sermon. We're going to jump into our, our, put on our scholar hats and we're going to do a little bit of a lecture right here. I want you to see what the Old Testament had to say about worship. So there's a couple words that the Bible uses for worship. If you turn your Bible and you look for the word worship, Right? You're going to find it, and what the first word, the most common word for worship, it means to bow down, okay? to bow down. Like here in Exodus 34, 8, the word is worshipped in our text. It says worship, right? Just to let you know, if you didn't know this, the Bible was not written in English, it was written in two different languages. It was written in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, right, that the Jews still speak today, and it was written in Greek, but a similar form of Greek. As the people who speak today, it's a little bit different, but Greek and Hebrew, right? Whenever you see Old Testament, think Hebrew, okay? So we have to translate the words into worship, right? Even the word worship, right? when I say it means recognition and submission, if you look in an English dictionary, worship has to do, um, the word is formed with the words worth and ascribing worth to something, right? Worth, 
Right? What is your phone worth? Right? A couple hundred bucks. Right? What is your favorite jacket worth? Maybe 50 bucks, 100 bucks, I don't know. What is it worth? You're ascribing worth to it. Right? When you look at God, and you see God, and you think about God, and you worship, you're saying God is worthy. He, he's, he, he's valuable. He's expensive. That's the idea. He, he's different. He's big. He's great. He's powerful. He's strong. He's loving. You're, you're, you're praising him because you're, you're recognizing what he's worth. Worshiping. This word means to bow down. Look at Exodus uh, 34, 8. It says, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Right? If you don't know what happened before this, this might be confusing. One of the most important verses in all the Bible comes in verse 6 and 7. These two verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It's when after Moses said to God, I want to see more of who you are. I want you to sh- explain to me who you are. Show me more about yourself. And what God says in Exodus 34 is, first of all, he says, I'm the Lord. I'm the one who always was. Also, I'm a God who's merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping faithful love for thousands from generation to generation. But I will by no means clear the guilty. So God just revealed something about himself. What is Moses doing? He's recognizing what God said about himself and he's, he's bowing. He, he's submitting to God. Those two elements, he's recognizing and submitting. That word to bow is also used in the New Testament. That's what the word worship, when we translate worship, it usually means to bow. In, um, in Greek, the word resembles, the word in English, to prostrate, to prostrate oneself. Right? That's, it's what it looks like in, in Greek. It's the same word, to prostrate. Right? So, here in the end of the Bible, Revelation 4, this is the scene in heaven. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, that's God, who lives forever and ever, if you didn't know who it was before, right? The 24 elders, this, this scene right here in heaven, where these important people in heaven, I'm not sure who they are, but these 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne, right? They fall down, you can just picture them bowing down and worship him who lives forever, right? So whenever you see the word worship in the Bible, it usually ha- creates this idea of bowing, right? And you know what that's like. Sometimes, maybe when you're a little kid and you're praying, what do your parents say before you pray? Bow your head and pray with me, right? That's probably how most of you were taught how to pray. Bow your head, right? Does, now think this through. Does God not hear you if your head is not bowed? Does your head have to be bowed for God to hear you, right? No. So why did people say bow your head? What was that about? It was a submission thing. It was like respecting God. Right? Just like, you know, if the Queen of England walked through the doors of 120 East, right? well, that'd be really weird. I don't know what she's doing here. Um, she's got a lot to deal with in England, but she shows up here, right? What would you do? You'd probably look at her, all attention would go to her, and you'd be like, what, what, what are you doing here? And if you were English, maybe you'd do, you know, a curtsy or a bow, or, you know, you'd take your hand and do whatever, right? Which, by the way, I actually found out you're actually not allowed to touch anyone who's royalty. Like, they have to extend their hand to you. Like, you can't shake their hands. Anyway, weird stuff. Anyway, that's why we're Americans, right? We just salute the president or whatever. Or we're like, oh, that's cool, right? <laughs> I don't know. That's not very respectful. Oh, that's cool, right? Um, but you show some kind of sign of submission. Some sign that you're important and you're more important than me, right? Just like sometimes some of you um, were taught to say yes sir or yes ma'am, right? What are you saying? That's a reverence thing. That's saying you're more important than me. Or at school, you call your teachers Mr. and Mrs. something. You don't call them Matt, Jerry, Jim, 
I'm naming my teachers that I can think of from high school. Um, Matt and Jerry and Jim. Whatever. You can picture your teacher's first names. You probably know your teacher's first names, but you don't call them that. Why? Because you're, you're recognizing you're the teacher and I'm not. It's a submission thing. That's what this word means to bow, to worship. Another word in the Bible which means worship, we see it in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the word to fear. Deuteronomy 10.12 actually includes two of our words, one that we're going to get to later. This verse comes when the people of Israel have left the land of Egypt. So that book Exodus that happens that we just read from, um, the people of Israel, they leave the land of Egypt. There were slaves there, Moses and Aaron, they lead the people out. And as they're led out, they spend some time in the wilderness, right? They're, before they get to the land that they're supposed to get, because they complain, God says you're going to stay in the wilderness. So this book of Deuteronomy comes right before they're going to go in. So Moses is a really, really old guy at this point. He's going to die before they even go in. This is to the next generation of people. And here's, here's what God has to say. He says, and now Israel, what does the Lord, your God, require of you? What does God want you to do? Like, what, what is it that he wants? He wants you to fear him, fear the Lord your God, and to walk in all of his ways, to obey him, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Right? That's worship. To fear God is to worship. Remember what we just talked about in, in Hebrews 12? Your Bible's probably still open to it. Hebrews 12. It says, we're going to worship with reverence and awe. We're going to fear. We're going to say, whoa, you're important. Wow. Fear. New Testament, same thing. This guy named Cornelius, he was a Roman official. He was not a Jewish person, but it says he was kind of in between a Jew and a Gentile, right? A Gentile means a non-Jewish person. So he was born a non-Jewish person, but he would hear sermons about God. He uh, supposedly had read the Bible and he said, well, I believe in God, right? Um, It's like people saying, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I believe in God at least, right? What this word in the New Testament says he he feared God. He was a God-fearer. What that means is, Although he didn't do everything that, that God wanted him to do and become a, a Jew in that sense and follow God and follow all the rules, he at least recognized God and respected God. Right? It was like a lower tier of a follower of God. Right? Oh, I just fear God. Right? It means he did some kind of worship to God. Same idea, to fear. Old Testament and New Testament. You see how, it's funny, because these four terms I'm going to give you, the first one was to bow down. The second one is to fear. The next two also they are found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So worship remains consistent, although the details of worship change over time. Back to Deuteronomy 10, 12, I said there's another word that came in here about worship, that word serve, right? It says we're supposed to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. When you think of worship, that's another thing that's included in worship, to serve God, right? So it's more than just music, right? It includes music, but that's not all that it includes, to serve God. New Testament, where does it say that? Well, Romans 12, this word, worship, means service. Right? Read it, check it out. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, come to God, as a living sacrifice. Right? In the Old Testament, they would sacrifice animals, and that would be pleasing to God. God said, that's what I want. Right? In the New Testament, he doesn't want us to sacrifice animals, he wants us to be the sacrifice. He wants us to come to God and live for God. Not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. It says, holy and acceptable to God. Right? We need to live lives that are holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or spiritual service. That's the idea. Worship. Another word, last word from the Old Testament and the New Testament, to minister. That word also means to worship. It's associated with the idea of worshiping. 
the book of Numbers, you've got these priests who worked in the temple in the tabernacle. And back in the Numbers, it was just the tabernacle. This tent where God set up, it was like the um, Old Testament version of a church. Right? It's where they talked to God. It's where they prayed to God. It's where they did all these things. And the priests would work inside the temple and they would light the menorah. You know, you've seen the menorah for... Um, What's it? Hanukkah, right? They would light the menorah. They would deal with the sacrifices. What it says here is the priest would minister, right? Sometimes when you hear the word minister, you think of a, like a pastor, right? A minister. We don't really use that word that much here. We just say the word pastor. But you can also be called a minister because that's what Paul calls himself. He says, I was a minister. Just like those priests in the Old Testament, I'm a minister to people now, right? And that's why sometimes pastors are called ministers, because what do they do? They serve the church. They are helpful in the worship of the church. Romans 15, here's what Paul said. He says, but on some points I've written to you very boldly. I've been bold with you guys. I've been honest, right? Some of you think I've been too honest. It says, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. I serve for you, people who are not Jewish necessarily, but you're Christians. It says, in the priestly service. He compares himself to an Old Testament priest. He's like, just like they ministered to the people of Israel, I am ministering as your pastor to you. That's what Paul was saying. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He was a minister. Those words mean worship. Well, the Old Testament and the New Testament also echo another thing. This is subpoint B, that no one else deserves that kind of worship. Nobody else deserves that kind of worship. Right? The worship we're supposed to give to God and the respect and the reverence and the submission, right? we're giving that to God and we're giving it to God in a way that we don't give it to any other people. Right? It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to recognize and to submit to earthly authorities. It's actually the opposite. That's why it says you're supposed to offer a special kind of worship because God is more powerful and more righteous than anybody else. Check this out. You know this verse probably. Um, if you guys remember the Ten Commandments, those two tablets that God wrote some rules down on, one of the things he said, he says, the first thing, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's it. No other gods. You might think, well, I'm good at that. Check mark, right? I, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Buddhist, I don't have, I'm not a Hindu, I don't have other gods before you, right? Well, the people of Israel actually didn't adopt other idols very fast. They didn't actually even call other things their idols, but very soon after, if you know the story, the golden calf was built. These Israelites, in a form of worship, they wanted to recognize God, and they wanted to put God in a box. They wanted to say, okay, so we can't understand God, because God's like so complex, like, let's just make a an, an idol, a golden calf, so a little cow, baby cow, right? It's like baby Yoda just before that, right? Um, it was a cow, baby cow. That's what a calf is. If you ever see the golden calf, it's like a golden statue of baby Yoda, right? I mean, that's kind of interesting, right? But what they did was they bowed down to that and they said, we're going to serve that, right? And that's God, right? They're trying to take the God that they knew and stuff him into this thing, right? What did they do? They, they made an idol out of it. The reason I like this picture is because that idol now, right? you might not bow down and serve another god, or you might not go to you know, a, a Muslim uh, mosque on Fridays, but you might serve 
other gods, if you put other things above God. That's why that subpoint says no one else deserves the kind of worship that God deserves, right? He deserves your worship. He deserves you to respect him and revere him and care about him more than anything else. Right? And things like this, things like money, things like success, things like fame, popularity, approval, power, comfort, career, yourself, entertainment, all the things that are kind of stuffed into this golden calf. Right? It's a representation that today, if you make other things the most important thing in your life, you're not giving God the worship he deserves. You're not giving God the worship he desires. Worse than that, you're taking it away from him, really. Because if God deserves all worship, and maybe you've heard a song that says that, right? He deserves all praise and all worship. What does that mean? That means he deserves praise and worship and care in your life more than anything else, more than any person in your life, more than any sport in your life, more than your grades, more than your popularity, more than you know, how funny you think you are, how pretty you are. God deserves more attention from you than all of those things. Right? That's a high bar. Be like if um, you created one of these volcanoes for a science fair project. Has anybody ever done that? That's pretty cliche, but have you ever made like a volcano for a science fair project? Right. Imagine you've got this big project that's due, right? And you make it and it looks great and you, you, you pour blood, sweat, and tears into this thing, right? Not literally because that would be weird in a volcano, right? Because the blood would come out and the sweat and the tears. Never mind, forget I said that. Um, just, it'd be weird, right? But you put all this work into it, right? And you set it on the table. That person in your class, that guy, you know that guy? You know that guy? Maybe you are that guy, right? That guy who comes in and just wants to take everything, he comes in, takes your name tag off of it, slaps his name tag on it, and presents it to the teacher. How do you feel at this point? Right? He just came in and just stole your really cool thing. Look at this guy. He's got glasses. You can't trust him, right? I don't know. I have glasses. Get it? That was a joke. Um, oh, right? He's wearing a, that's me. No, that's not me. I've never had a, a, a blonde, uh, blonde hair at all. Also, fun fact about me, I've had the same hairstyle my entire life. So, uh, yeah. since I was a baby. Never mind, that was a really weird thing to say. So that's not me, by the way. That's not like an old picture of me. Um, but couldn't, I, imagine that. Imagine if someone came in and stole your thing and got all the credit. And everybody thought, whoa, this is the greatest thing. And you're like, I did that. That's my thing. I deserve that credit, right? It wouldn't be wrong for you to feel that way because that person cheated you out of that, right? Here's the problem. That's what we do with God, right? When we take the worship that should go to God and we give it to other things, we're taking it away from him. Because just like you make that thing, right, that really awesome project that you work so hard on, right? Bible says that if you're a Christian, you are God's workmanship. God created you. He made you. You're his. He deserves the praise. If things are going well in your life, you ought to talk to him and thank him for that. If things are going bad, you've got to turn to him and trust in him. He deserves all the credit for what he's done. Don't take God's credit away that he rightly deserves. Said so the big idea is we've got to sing worship. Right? Point number one really wasn't even about music. If you notice, that was just about what the Bible said about worship. Just God deserves our worship. But here's the other thing that we understand from the Bible, that our worship of God is mandatory. It's not optional. Sometimes when we think about church or we think about thanking God or whatever you put worship into, you think, well, that's optional. I could come to that part or I can go to that thing, but I don't have to. Here's the deal. God demands the worship because it's the right thing because he deserves it, first of all. 
But also, he says there are some things that are mandatory, not optional things. I know there's a lot of different kinds of worship, but I want to talk to you guys about some of the things back in the Old Testament and some of the things in the New Testament that are commanded. You might say, well, what's the difference, right? There's two types of mandatory worship, okay? Two types. One type is the commanded type. And what I mean by that, you could also put the word specific or um, things that God specifically said, you need to do this to worship me, right? There's another category of things where God is less specific, but I want to talk to you guys about those specific things that God said, this is how I want to be worshiped. This is how I want to be worshipped. First of all, think through even worship itself. When you come together at church, that's a mandatory thing. Okay? According to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we, you and me, we are called to be at church regularly. Right? And when we skip church, we're disobeying God. Right? When we don't go to church, when we choose other things other than church, that's not right. That's wrong. What the Bible says is, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Right? I know that sometimes there's a, there's a tournament or there's something that has to keep you away for a weekend or maybe for a Saturday, but come on Sunday. Maybe there's things that keep you away on a weekend. You better be there the next week. Be there on Wednesday night. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. Even gathering to church, right? And which for you guys, step one is complete. You're here. So that's great. I'm glad you're, you're obeying God in that way. You're here. But even worship in general is commanded. What types of worship? Well, first of all, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of rituals, right? Things that they were supposed to do. This idea, I already mentioned it. Um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, one form of worship was taking a lamb or a goat or a pigeon or a bull or an animal, coming to worship, giving it to the pastor of the time, and having him sacrifice it. Right? You're thinking, that's really weird. Right? I've never done that before. Right? That's because those rules for worship don't apply anymore. So thus far in the sermon, when we've looked at Old Testament and New Testament, we've seen everything's similar. Right? Those words are similar. The idea is similar. But when Jesus came, he, it says he fulfilled that Old Testament law. All of these things were pictures. They pointed to Christ. They were things that essentially said, you got to be like Christ. We got to focus on Christ. And all of those things were meant to point you to Christ. That was a ritual in the Old Testament. Things like that lamb, imagine that. Seriously, think that through. Imagine you were a pet owner, right? It's weird. You're pet owner of a little lamb. And God says, here's what I want. I want you to take that pet, that little lamb, I want you to bring that lamb to me, and you're going to sacrifice that lamb. Why? Right? The New Testament tells us why. Because it's all a picture was all a picture of what Jesus was going to do. The New Testament says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. The reason we don't do these things anymore that were prescribed in the Old Testament for this group of people was because we have the fulfilled. We have the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament, there are still rituals that we have to do. Things like these two things. You might recognize those. Right? We still have rituals. Right? We have baptism. We have communion. That's, by the way, that's an old picture of my wife. That's when she got baptized. Um, she was not my wife at the time. If you notice, she's like 14 years old. So that was a long time ago. Um, but that's what it looks like at our church. We still have rituals, right? It's not bringing an animal to be sacrificed, right? But it is showing up to church. It is baptism, which you've ever thought of that? That's weird, right? What baptism means is we're placing people into water and bringing them out of water. Why? What, why? It's a ritual. It's because it's what Christ commanded us to do. Right? It's a, it signifies something that's really important. 
You hear it every time we have a baptism service, but what it means is that you, you take people, you put them in the water, you bring them out, and what that is, it's a visual picture for all of us to show something that Jesus already did in their life, that they've been placed into Christ. They've been placed into the Spirit. Now, they've been placed into the family of God. Just like they're placed into the water, that's a picture of being placed into God. So it's a ritual. We still do some rituals. The other one right there is that cup and that bread, right? We call it communion at a church. We do it about once a month, right? And what that was intended to do was Jesus said, I want you to eat this meal. I want you to drink the cup and eat this bread in remembrance of me. He says, I want you to remember what I did for you. Remember that just like my body was broken, this bread is broken. Just like my blood was spilled for you, you're going to drink this cup, right? He's saying these physical things we do that are symbolic, they're, they're called rituals, right? We might say, oh, we don't have any rituals. We have those in the Old Testament. We still do have those. They're just different. Another thing that's commanded happens right here, right? The preaching, right? That was something that was done in the Old Testament. In the book of Nehemiah, we've, we see this, this crazy story about how all the people of Israel got together, they stood in the town square, and Ezra preached to them for six hours at a time, right? Could you imagine if I preached to you for six hours, right? Outside in the sun, right? What if I told you to do this? Stand up the whole time, right? That's what they did. Yeah, now you're like, oh, I like my 45-minute sermon in the chair, right? I like that, right? Well, they stood up and they listened to this sermon for six hours, and they didn't just do it once. They did it day after day until he got through the entire five books of the Old Testament, the first five books. Think about what if I had to preach the first five books to you, right? And we couldn't stop until we did that every day, right? That was a big deal. They stood there and they listened to that. New Testament, same way, right? It's another commanded thing that you're commanded to come underneath the word of God. And that's why it's great that you're here, right? Because you're doing what God wants you to do. You're coming to church. You're, you're being taught the word of God. Someone's preaching to you, right? Telling you what the word of God says, what it meant, what it says always, and what it means for our life now. Preaching, listening to the Bible taught. Another form of worship that's mandatory, happens right here. It's when we pray. Really, if you think about worship and prayer, they're almost interchangeable. Because when you sing worship songs to God, all that really is, is it's prayer set to music. Right? What's prayer? It's when you're talking to God. What's worship songs? It's you singing to God. Right? The only difference is, is the way you do it. Right? You can say the same things in a prayer and in a worship song. What's the difference? Well, you're just singing one and you're saying the other. Prayer. Old Testament. 1 Kings 8, Solomon comes, he builds this temple. The first thing he does, what does he do? He prays. He says he stands there and he prays. We get a whole chapter of the Bible. It's this big, long chapter, this big, long prayer that Solomon prays in the temple. What about in the New Testament? Well, 1 Timothy 2.8 says, every time you get together, here's what I want you to do. I want someone to pray. That needs to be included in every worship service. Every time we get together as a church, you need to pray. That's why in our service, we actually pray... Um, one, two, sometimes three times in our worship service. We pray after announcements and before worship. We pray after worship and before the sermon. And we pray after the sermon. You get to be led in prayer three times every time you come to the narrow. Right? The reason we do that is because in the Bible, that's one of the commanded forms of worship. We worship when we pray. Last form is singing. The Old Testament, the idea of singing was there just like it was in the New Testament. There's not much difference here. There's a lot of difference in the rituals. There's not many differences in the songs. Right? Back in Psalm 100, right, which by the way, whenever you see the word psalm, what that word means is song. Right? That's why there's the book of Psalms, plural. Right? Each individual one is a song. 
or a psalm. Right? Song equals psalm. Psalms equals songs. Right? You're like, what? I couldn't even tell the difference, right? Here, I'll show you. Ready? I, I, can, I can write on this, so I'm going to do it. Right? Psalm equals song. Psalms equals songs. That's what I just said, right? So yeah, you're welcome. Okay. Um, stop clapping, you guys. Here's what Psalm 100 says, right? Singing was commanded. Check it out. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, only if you feel like it. If you're having a good day, make, oh no. It says, all the earth, everyone should do it. Serve the Lord with gladness. Only, you know, only if you feel like it though, because some days, you know, no. Sing, sing and serve. Come into his presence with singing, if you've got a good voice, because if you don't have a good voice, please don't sing, right? Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. And then what does it say? Know that the Lord, he is God, right? What did we say worship was? Recognition of God, right? You're recognizing God, right? And you're submitting to God. It's he who made us. What are you recognizing about God? You're saying, wow, God made us. You're, you're thinking about who he is and what he's done. It's he who made us, and we are his. That's, that's really important, right? It's one thing for God to make us. He makes everything. But in this context, and for our context, right, we are his people in a special way, right? The Israelites, they were the nation that God chose and says, this is my nation, these are my people, right? So that's why they could sing, we're his people, we are the sheep of his pasture. Same way now, Christians can sing, we are his people. Right? We're not just his people by creation. We're his people because he chose to save us through Jesus. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Right? When you come to church, that was the idea. When you come to the temple, you go through the gates. Come in with thanksgiving. In his courts with praise. Sing praise to God. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Tell people that God's great. It says, for the Lord is good. Right? Notice. What is the big idea? Remember back at the big idea at the top of your page? Right? That you're worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. Right? This is one of the things about who he is. God is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. That's something that he does. And his faithfulness to all generations. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God we worship. That's why he deserves it. Right? That's in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Right? Colossians 3.16. Here's what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Think about the Bible. Let the Bible Inform the way you think and dwell on it. Then do what? Teach, admonish, right? Teaching means helping other people understand. Admonishing means correcting people when they're wrong. In all wisdom. What else? When the word of Christ dwells in you richly, what else do you do? You sing psalms and hymns and spiritual th songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right? It's one thing to come together and sing and mouth the lyrics, right? Like many of us do every single time worship comes on, right? We stand here, we look at the lyrics, we sing like we're singing happy birthday, right? What's the problem? You can sing without thankfulness in your hearts towards God. God says, no, I want you to sing with thankfulness in your hearts. Singing is the overflow of what goes on in your hearts. Not the thing that's forcing your heart to feel the way it does and to think the way it does about God. I said that commanded worship was the first type. There's another type of worship that I want you to think through and that the Bible has a lot to say about. Spontaneous worship. Okay? That's why if you think, well, if all we're supposed to do is commanded worship, then I can just worship on Sunday morning, I can go the whole week and not do any other worship, I can come back next Sunday and I can just worship then. Right? Is that all? Well, no, because there's also spontaneous worship that's mandatory. You and I, we need to worship spontaneously. That means based on the situation, we can worship at any point in time. I want you to turn, or before you turn, I want you to notice these, 
two psalms I have on, on the screen. Psalm 13 and Psalm 105. Psalm 13, if you know anything about that psalm, it starts out by saying, how long? How long? God, are you going to listen to me? How, wait, how long do I have to ask you? How long? Right? Do, do you even hear me? Right? He says that for a while. And then at verse 6, he says, wait a minute, hold on. I'm going to sing the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. God's been good to me. I know I'm going to praise him. Psalm 105 says, sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all of his wondrous works. And that's part of worship. We're explaining and we're, we're expressing the good things that God has done. Another thing, I want you to turn the beginning of your Bibles, Exodus 15. Exodus 15. It's this scene right here where right after the people of Israel were led out of the wilderness, they came to this place called the Red Sea. Right? You might have heard of it. People say, oh, part the Red Sea. Right? That's a reference to in the Bible when Moses stood there and God said, if you raise your hand, you put the staff down, God's going to part the sea. Right? It's this big ocean. Right? Not as big as an ocean, but it's like a big, big, great lake. I don't know. Big pond. Big lake. Right? Moses puts the staff down, puts the staff up, and then, boom. They spread out. The waters like this, they spread out. And it says they walked over not on muddy, sandy, silty ground, but they walked over on dry ground. It was a miracle. This was not a natural phenomenon. This was a supernatural phenomenon. And they go through the people of Israel, one million people, one million people strong. They walk through this, this sea. They get to the end. The Egyptians are following them in their big chariots. And they're going over on dry ground too. And just as they're about to catch up, the last people of the nation of Israel come out. And what does God do? God takes the sea and he closes it back up. And this, this army gets taken out in one blow. Not by the Israelites, but by God. Now look at what Moses says. This is Exodus chapter 15, towards the beginning of your Bibles. Check it out. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. What is he saying? He's saying stuff that God did, right? That's part of praise. You're singing about what God did. Then he says something about who God is right here. Verse two, the Lord is my strength in my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Verse three says something about who God is. This probably won't make it into the song that we're closing with today. It says, the Lord is a man of war, right? That's intense. He's a warrior. The Lord is his name. Why is he calling God a warrior, right? Because God just took out an entire army all by himself, right? Why? Well, to protect his people of Israel, right? It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Starts talking about God again. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury and it consumes them like stubble. What did Hebrews 12 say? Our God is a consuming fire. That's a reference back to here. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters are piled up, right? Imagine this scene. It would be crazy to see it all happen. What Moses says in this poetic way, in this expressive way, he's saying it's like, uh, like you, you blew on the water and it just stood up in this heap. And then when you stopped blowing, it all came back and it took out these Egyptians. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11. I want you all to check this out. It says, Who is like you, O Lord? Who's like you? Among the gods. 
There are plenty of Egyptian gods that those people worshipped. They worshipped them all the time, in fact. There is a whole group of them. But God said, I'm God. And one of the ways he proved that was by doing miracles. If you remember the ten plagues, those were things that God did specifically to call out those different Egyptian gods to say, you're not a god, I'm God. I'm the Lord. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. He's saying something interesting about God here. He's saying that God's holy. Right? If you know what the word holy means, it means God is totally different than us. God is totally unique. God is totally different. And that's something we should praise him for. He's majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You might think, well, I didn't walk through the Red Sea, so I'm not singing this song to God, right? But there's plenty of things, if you're a Christian, that God has done for you. God has done something more than just lead you through the Red Sea. God has sent his son Jesus to come live for you and die for you and to save you, right? To save you from the penalty of sins that you deserve, that I deserve, right? I deserve to go to hell when I die, right? Because of all the wrong things I've done. But Jesus came to save me. I have much more to sing about than even those Israelites. That's why in the New Testament, Paul says, you should rejoice always. Always? Are you sure? Always? Right? Even... When times are bad, why always? Right? Well, yeah, rejoice always. Because you've got plenty of things to rejoice about. Right? Not just that your family's good or that your house is good or you've got good friends. Right? That's not what he's saying. Rejoice always because you can rejoice in the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances. Good ones, bad ones. You can thank God for something. Even if things are bad, thank God. There's things that you can thank God for. For this is the will of God. In Christ Jesus for you. You see how that's a spontaneous thing? That's not just on Sunday mornings you're thanking God. That's on Saturday nights. That's on Monday mornings. That's after a test on Friday. That's before your sports practice on Tuesday night. That's before TNN, after TNN on Wednesday. Like that's, that can be all the time. You can thank God. I know that that might feel like we've been talking about a lot of different things and we have about worship, but I want you to have a better understanding of what the whole Bible says about worship. And next time we get together, Nathan is going to cover some of the specifics about what it looks like before we come to the worship service. What are the things we should be thinking about? What are the things that we should be singing about? What kind of songs should we be singing in between the worship services? He's going to talk about all that next time. But what I want to do right now is I want to pray. I want to sing one more song. Jonah's going to come back up and we're going to sing one more song to the Lord. We're going to worship him. So let's put this into practice. Let's pray.